family. It is time for another episode of Hype is My Superpower. I'm one of your hosts, Steve Storman in Brooklyn, New York. Joining me online, as always, via the Micros Modern Technology. It's my good buddy, Will Freeland. Will, what's good? Chilling, man. It's been quite a week since last time we've recorded. The smallest of the announcements is I got a magic card that I'm very excited about. And I'm very excited to put it into my deck that is already too strong to play within my playgroup, but it's fine. <laughs> it's basically after I have one more card that I need to go and find and put in, and the deck will be arguably complete for now. And so I'm very excited about that. Awesome. So that came in. I got affiliate on Twitch. Yeah. The support that have come out over the last week on Twitch has been mind-blowing and <laughs> just soul-filling. Part of the celebration and also early birthday gift is Wally got me this thing called Stream Deck. Uh-huh. And it's literally just a bunch of buttons that you can pre-program literally Sweet. anything on. It's like muting your mic and switching views and adding little sound clips. And oh, so it's wow. all on one little thing and you just hit the buttons as you need them. Oh, that's really awesome. Yeah. And so like any streamer with worth his salt uh, is going to have one. <laughs> and so I've been looking at the 16 button one and I was like, you know, down the line, you know, after I pay mm-hmm. off most of the stuff that I've already bought for streaming, <laughs> uh, <laughs> then, uh-huh. uh, then I'll get a stream deck. And then Wally shows up with a 32 button stream deck and, and just blows my this mind. Guy. A bit, so awesome. So shout out to Wally. I made, t- it made it to your first stream as an affiliate and that was such a fun time. Really enjoyed yeah. hanging out. Great community. And I remember like my first Kickstarter and just like seeing people pour in and support what you're doing. And, and it just, yeah, it's the most soul filling thing. And, you know, you've got a big community of people who love you a lot and really, really stoked to see this working out in all the best too, ways man. for you. Man, you just, you absolutely deserve it and all the good things. And so it's really, yeah, really fun so to been, watch. It's been a lot of fun. And <laughs> thank you for coming in. Of course. And thank you for stopping by. Of course. So, and then, you know, we both had weddings over the last weekend that we had to go yep. to. You went to Palm Springs. I was in Palm Springs. Uh-huh. Uh, you were in New Hampshire. I was in New Hampshire. Live free or die, baby. <laughs> Got it. You, you, you can't see it when you listen to the podcast, but like 10, 13 years ago in a previous life, I was organizing this conference in Boston with a friend who was living in New Hampshire at the time. And in the last couple of weeks, I went to stay with her to do some on the ground organizing and she informed me that you have to throw up the the horns when you say live free or die. It's a real New Hampshire necessity. So those of you listening to the podcast, you can't see it, but threw up the horns. Don't get mad, New Hampshireites. I'm doing it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so it's uh, so that's been fun. And then um, I read some comics. Awesome. As well. Yeah. What'd you read? So this week, I realized, is very MCU potentially centric. Mm-hmm. I read Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi, Volume 1, Brothers and Sisters. Awesome. I read Eternals to Defy the Apocalypse, which is a, an older book. Came out in the early aughts, I believe is what they're called. <laughs> <laughs> like 2004 and five. Sure. And then I've got Marvel Zombies Resurrection, which... I had so many assumptions and questions about, and most of them got answered. And it also, so this is the sixth 
Marvel Zombies book. And all of them have ended with like a cliffhanger to be like, hey, look, the horror hasn't stopped. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm excited for a a potential second volume for this because this is kind of a relaunch. We'll go into it when when we talk about it. But um, this is sort of a second run of Marvel Zombies. Yeah, I've got a packed show today because I also have a beast of a chapter of Nomon. I was I was lying to Will early. I was like, ah, oh, it's not so bad. It's a lot of running. No, this is this is thick. Yeah, I only know that it's juicy because because you never <laughs> you never let me get away with to, bullshit. Yeah, but I also <laughs> just listened to our last two pods over the weekend. And it refreshed me for getting ready for Nomon and both mm-hmm. pods. You're like, oh man, in two chapters. And then, oh man, next chapter, it gets really meaty. And I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to be. I was one. miscounting. This one isn't the, the like super crazy one, but it's still, okay. there's a lot. There's a lot. Cool. Shall we? Yeah. I'm stoked. Yes. Let's, let's, uh, let's just hop into it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start with Shang-Chi because I think there's the least to talk about here. So this is five issues, and like I kind of mentioned before uh, last week, Shang-Chi hasn't really had a title in like 30, 40 years, which is a semi-lie because there's a volume that came out a couple years ago called The Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. Okay. And I think it was like nine issues in one thicker book that was Shang-Chi related. Okay. So it was a limited series still. Yeah, it wasn't memorable. Okay. Because... I only know it existed because I listened to Nando V Movies podcast talking about the movie Shang-Chi and he mentioned it. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Uh, So Clearly made an impression on you. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So in this, they kind of spend time introducing some lore around Shang-Chi. Yeah. Because when we introduced Shang-Chi back in the like 70s, yeah. Yeah, in the 70s, he was just kind of like the kung fu guy because kung fu movies were a thing. Right. And he was originally introduced with like long bowl cut hair, (laughs) very unattractive. And then Bruce Lee became a thing. And so he got a redesign to look a little more like Bruce Lee. He was also introduced as Fu Manchu's son. Fu Manchu is both a horrendous racist caricature and a public domain character. And I'm not sure which is a worse sin in the eyes of Marvel. So <laughs> yeah, so Marvel <laughs> doesn't have the right Fu Manchu anymore. <laughs> so Fu Manchu is a horribly racist character that showed up in novels back in the 20s. Mm-hmm. So they spent time in New Avengers back in like 2011, kind of accepting slash retconning that storyline. Basically making Shang-Chi's dad, his name being Zhang Zhu. Okay. And one of the names he has gone by in his expanded semi-immortal life uh, was Fu Manchu. Sure. So it was like a throwback to accepting that that was a thing. <laughs> right. But his well, actual also name not is Zhang Zhu. Yeah. Yeah. So Shang-Chi, as you kind of alluded to there, he joined the Avengers during Hickman's run. Yeah. But he was one of like... Seriously, like 40 members yeah, of that that was, Avengers that team. That was during Avengers World, and that was Hickman flexing, showing our world that mm-hmm. you can have a cohesive Avengers story with a rotating roster of 40-plus characters at one time. <laughs> <laughs> and so not a whole <laughs> lot of page room for deep lore character development, anything like mm-hmm. that. So. Kind of a kind of a blank slate slate here that they're doing both in this book and presumably in the movie as well. Yeah, pretty much. So 
the movie and the book actually don't match, which I thought was interesting. Wow, cool. But also nice. <laughs> yeah. We do a whole bunch of backstory, which isn't necessarily worth going into because I don't necessarily need to care about. We don't, the pod, it doesn't necessarily need to care about Zhang Zhu's story. But sure. basically there's, I think it's the eight, the eight kingdoms war or something. Eight different countries were invading China and Zhang Zhu and his dad defended China. And after that, they established five houses to look after China. And each one is a member of the five weapons society. One is the deadly fist. The There's the deadly saber, the deadly hammer, deadly staff, and deadly knife. Okay. Knives. Each house has a champion. And currently, Shang-Chi is the champion of the Deadly Hand. Makes sense. But he renounced his title, renounced the house. While he technically is the leader of the Deadly Hand, he is not an active participant in the houses and the like group protecting thing that they're doing, that they're known for. It's just kind of just backstory establishing stuff. With Zhang Zhu's passing, this like five piece picture with a with candle with a candle on each piece, and each one of those has like a fist, a hammer, a sword, knife, and a staff. And whatever the candle is lit on, that is to be the recognized head of the five houses. Okay, the great commander of the houses, kind of a thing, mm-hmm. and. Currently, the chosen commander is the House of the Deadly Hammer. And in the first issue, the House of the Deadly Staff assassinates the head of the Deadly Hammer because they want to have control over the five houses. The Deadly Hammer candle goes out and the spirit of Zheng Zhu lights a new candle and it chooses the Deadly Fist. Hmm. Even though... The Deadly Fist has been chosen. Deadly Staff is trying to bring the houses under her rule to be like, I'm the great commander. You will listen to me. But then Saber and Knife is just like, well, it chose Fist. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) enter the reason why Shang-Chi is involved because Staff wants to kill Shang-Chi to become the true chosen commander. And you have Saber and Knife going to try to defend Shang-Chi and try to bring him into the fold to make him the commander. Sure. It's not explicitly explained, but it seems like each head is a child of Zhang Zhu. Oh. Because they call each they call each other brother and sister, but I don't know okay. if it's like war brother versus sure. like blood brother. Yeah. <laughs> because Shang-Chi and the Deadly Staff have a history as brother and sister and childhood history. And because Mm. she is the chosen antagonist, they go into it a little bit more. But Saber and Knife also calls Shang-Chi brother, but they never establish if, and like he's just met them. So like, I don't know if through the years, Shang Zhu has just had other baby mamas Mm -hmm. or or what's going on, but it doesn't seem to be very important. So it's fine. (laughs) Sure. Comic stuff happens. Monsters are involved. Zhang Zhu has a brother, Zhang Yi, and there is a legacy behind that. It's all like, it's not that important to the story. Okay, sure, <laughs> sure, 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 sure. But it, it basically, the whole point is, it gets established that his sister, which I really should get her name. I'm sorry. 
Um. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the um, the wiki up here. Zheng Xihua. I am terrible at Chinese pronunciations. Xihua. Yeah, that sounds about right. Sister this Hammer. It's funny because this is the last one that I read and I should know this. <laughs> yeah, Xihua. Okay, Xihua. Sister yeah, Hammer. Xihua is her name and then Zheng is her last name. It basically comes down to Xihua has a lot of trauma from the strict upbringing of Zheng Zhu. Basically, Shang-Chi is like, hey, you need to let this go. And she finally does. And it's like, okay. Like, that's a climactic battle. Cool. They have like a spirit plane conversation and it ends. So the last issue ends with Shang-Chi accepting being the great commander of the five houses. Although currently there's only four because the House of the Deadly Hand got dissolved. And so I assume the next volume will be him starting a new House of the Deadly Hand. Yeah. But uh, he is the current commander and he is ushering in a new era uh, for the five houses. Five Weapons Society. Okay. The, the writing was okay. It wasn't amazing. The pacing seemed fine. Just like overall, just like nothing. It did. It established more history and gave Shang-Chi a place. But like, I feel like the only reason why it happens is because he has a movie right now. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. the movie did a better job of putting him within the MCU than I feel like this book did of giving people a reason to care about Shang-Chi within 616. I, I just realized that the movie already came out and that, <laughs> that I yes. haven't seen it. That's how disconnected I am from the, like, just movie theater <laughs> reticence, you know? Uh, just mm-hmm. It was such a, like, going to the theaters was such a, an event for it. and I know. Uh, yeah. And it's so. only a theater release. And in a couple of weeks by now, I think after 45 days, they're going to put it on Disney+. Plus. Okay. But uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Okay, cool. I yeah, really I'm really it. looking forward to it. It's, I would say it's the top, in the top third of the MCU movies. Wow, that's that's high praise. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty good. Not gonna lie. Awesome. It doesn't it doesn't you know it doesn't outclass like Winter Soldier, sure, or Civil War or Ragnarok for what those movies are. Right. But I thought it was a good movie. Awesome. I'm I'm really excited to see it. Yeah, definitely. So two things stood out to me about what Shang Chi can do now. Mm-hmm. So he's always been just the perfect martial artist, right? There's been some scenes here and there throughout the years of like balancing and focusing his chi. And like through that, he's able to be stronger, this, that, and the other. He broke weapons with his fist. Like someone is attacking with like a hammer and he just punched the hammer and it destroys. (laughs) It falls apart. That's pretty dope. That's a very strong fist. <laughs> like, <laughs> Un, like unto a thing of iron, you might say. Right? <laughs> uh, and like, I understand that with bare fist compared to the other four houses having, you know, weapons, he's got to be pretty insane. But that was like, I don't know. It's it's comics and sure. they're going to take some liberties and that's fine. It's just it, like, I don't see... Bruce Lee doing that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. Bruce Lee had control over his body like nobody else. And I don't you don't see him like punching holes in in like brick walls, you know? Right. Yeah. There's only there's only so much one can physically do. But then the other thing he did was, oh, I guess he has an ex-girlfriend in MI6. Her name is Laco Lee. 
it's just referenced as his ex. They don't really go into it beyond that. Sure. She goes to shoot Shihua and he he catches the bullet with two fingers hmm. right in front of Shihua's forehead. Interesting. It's not even like catching it like you would catch a fly with chopsticks. It's legit. <laughs> he just put his two fingers up and oh. stopped it in the crease of his fingers. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was just like, mm. <laughs> but yeah. like, if you're a badass master kung fu, then fine, okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, it was, it was good, but it wasn't as good as these other two books. I am at least interested to see what Marvel wants to do with Shang Chi going sure. forward, because that was Volume One. We'll see what Volume Two does, where they go with it. So I'm, I'm at least intrigued. I think that that it's an interesting point because I feel like I would prefer to read a book that's just about a guy with insanely good fighting skills, like fighting skills that are so far beyond anything else that he can hang with like actual superpowered individuals. Like that, that seems like a much more like when you start to be able to do things like that, it's, it's kind of like, okay, you, you have superpowers. Yeah. When you have, when you have people like, that's kind of what they talk about for uh, like Batman. Right. He has recovered from so much physical broken bones and trauma that it has been widely theorized and accepted that he has, he's developed his own like homemade superpower of like regeneration. (laughs) Like it's it's like, it's it's in his like wiki article (laughs) that he has a superpower and it's basically like being able to heal faster than others. Sure. From an outsider's perspective, it's so far away from what he's like introduced as and like established as like he is a human that can keep up right. with Dark Side and Superman and all these other big, big bads yeah. and big yeah. goods. And but he's been recognized as an equal because he's so extraordinary as a human to then give him a superpower or like some sort of extra human ability. That just feels like comics grasping at wanting to do something new mm-hmm. and not just establishing him as the ultimate human that we totally. Can have. Totally. So totally. yeah, I, I totally, I, I totally get it. I totally understand and agree. Okay. Next book, or is there anything else on? No, that was that was it. I'm interested to see what happens next. Uh, yeah, it wasn't totally. mind blowing, but enough to build on. Yeah, I imagine sales for it may increase a little bit if people want to s- see more of Shang Chi from watching the movie. But um, it it was it wasn't a mind blow. Sure. So next up, we're gonna go with Marvel Zombies Resurrection. Okay. And I'm sweet. realizing that I used the wrong cover for my Twitch. <laughs> I think I used issue like three or two. No, issue one. But this is yeah. Anyway, whatever. I get the point. Two number ones. Yeah. <laughs> so Marvel Zombies is an idea that came out at the end of the year 2005. While I thought it was a different origin. Apparently the first time we see them is in a story in Ultimate Fantastic Four. Okay. Which I remember this story. I just didn't know that that was the first. Sure. Basically, Ultimate Reed Richards, while he's still a good guy, discovers the existence of alternate universes and comes across an alternate universe adult Reed Richards that's telling him about like, oh, all the things I've done. You know, my kids, Franklin and Val, yada, yada, yada. And yeah. he's like, wow, that's crazy. Because Ultimate Reed Richards is is like a young adult. It's like, is she like 20, 21? So like, it's very early on in the career of the Ultimate Fantastic Four. Sure, sure. So Adult Reed Richards and Ultimate Reed 
work together to try to, instead of just communicating across dimensions, to be able to travel across dimensions. Okay. As soon as that happens, it's revealed that adult Reed is a zombie Reed from that earth. Mm. And that earth has been taken over by all these zombies. Mm -hmm. And so there's a little storyline about that. But then that, I guess, was such a huge hit that they did Marvel Zombies as its own title and kind of explored that earth. And it was a bit more slapstick, like... it, Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's fun and... They just, they don't care about anyone. They kill everyone because yeah, yeah. it's like, this is the Marvel, zo- it's zombies. Like, yeah. your favorite heroes are going to die somehow. And they're all just, you know, rotting superhero zombies, just like. Yeah. Yeah. And in that reality, they still have their memories and they still mm-hmm. have their powers. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you know, like a. They just want to eat thing. your brains. Yeah. Yeah. They just, they, they just have this insatiable hunger. As much as it pains them to do this, like you have a scene where like zombie Peter Parker is like eating Aunt May and Mary Jane (laughs) and like he feels so terrible about it. And but like the hunger. So that one ended with Galactus showing up on Earth and then them eating Galactus and then (laughs) them using the Galactus tech to travel the universe to yeah. go and spread the plague. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that lasted like five volumes. They did a crossover with Army of Darkness. Mm-hmm. And then like volumes two and three do a little more of the cosmic stuff. What, you know, like, can we do like zombie uh, Gardens of the Galaxy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that was a lot of fun. And then it took a break. And then the next time I see Marvel Zombies is in that flash forward of King from King Thor. Oh, where yeah. We have Thanos with a black gauntlet and Mjolnir with the six infinity stones and Marvel Zombies behind him. And you're like, oh, Lord. There was also a Marvel Zombies shout out on Battleworld, if I'm not mistaken, the whole wasteland during Secret Wars. Yeah. So in Battleworld, Zombies, the Ultron... And the Ultron horde and the Annihilation horde are (laughs) all on the outside of Battleworld. So yeah, Marvel Zombies are there. Anyway, just quick trivia. Sorry, continue. Yes, absolutely. So Marvel Zombies Resurrection, I'm going into it wondering, is this going to be set in 616? Is this going to be set in that same earth of the other zombies that we've already been introduced to. What are right. we going to see? Does this have something to do with the King Thor flash forward? Yeah. Yeah. So to directly answer. Oh, also for those, for other people who watch like Marvel's what if on Disney plus there is an episode with Marvel zombies that origin, the zombie. Do you care? Did you watch it yet? I haven't watched it yet. I don't, I, don't, it? I, don't care. I don't care. Spoilers. No, 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 go ahead. I should say in the first Marvel zombies I don't remember what the first infection was, but Spider-Man was the first infected. Mm. And then in Marvel's What If, Janet Van Dyne got the Mm. zombie virus in the quantum realm. Okay. And so Hank Pym brought her back and that's how it spread. Sure. In this one, so it starts with a distress call from Carol Danvers to Reed Richards talking about there's something up with Galactus. He seems dead at the edge of the universe. Uh, not the edge of the universe, sorry. The edge of the solar system. Oh, okay. But And he seemed like he was on a path towards Earth. And so Reed Richards gathers the X-Men and the Avengers to be like, this is what happened. I got to find out what's going on. At this point, is there any indication that this is 616 or not? 
not yet. Okay. And so that's what I'm freaking out about. So I'm like, because we know <laughs> Thor has killed Galactus. Right. Right. He used Galactus as a as a bomb to get rid oh of Oh my Black God. Winter. That's right. Oh God. So is so is this going to be related to that? And so I was starting to kind of freak out. <laughs> is is this also written by Donny Cates? Like, because Donny Cates is writing that Thor run, right? Yeah, he is. But this is written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Okay, then that that would be an indication. Yeah, it would. <laughs> it, it really would. So Tony Stark is really excited to go see because he wants to take some of that sweet, sweet Galactus tech. And Reed's taking this super seriously because... Basically, anybody who gets their hands on anything Galactus related, yeah. not a good time. Not a so good time. So they need to deal with this quickly. They gather a team of the Fantastic Four, some Avengers, and some X-Men. The Avengers that go are Thor, War Machine, Cap, and Iron Man. You have the Fantastic Four. For the X-Men, you have Magneto, Magic, Beast. I think that's it. They go and they find like this Galactus in the fetal position. Magneto opens him up and Mm -hmm. they're like, oh my gosh, there's this giant dead Galactus, but dead Galactus still has his helmet. So that tells me different you. Okay. (laughs) Different universe. And while they're looking at the dead Galactus, they see something in the mouth. Well, Wolverine sees something in the mouth. So Wolverine went also. Wolverine sees something in the mouth. He's like, someone's watching us. <laughs> They're like, well, I guess we should go check it out. <laughs> so Reed is getting a sample. And the only reason I point this out is because it's very interesting to me. But Galactus has this thing. They notice that his physical body is still representing his physical form in a human image. And he talks about Galactus's visually perceived form is dictated by the biases of the observer. Humans see him as human, Chitari as Chitari, and so on. Cool. My drones are now mapping what appears to be a physical humanoid body. Even in death, we're remaking Galactus's physical form in our own image, simply through our perception of it. The impact of an observer on their environment is well documented, but this is... So he's just... That's awesome. You're losing his mind about the fact yeah, that yeah, yeah. it's a human Galactus. But then, so I'm thinking like, we see Galactus deal with go to other planets and other beings, but then I'm like, oh, but I'm a human. And yeah, I'm reading yeah. Galactus. So it's, it's just like, ah, cool. <laughs> it's just a little like fun thing that stood out. Anyway, it is established that there's like semi breathable air within Galactus. And so they can take their helmets off. And Logan is the best tracker ever. And so he start, he smells something. He smells some dead and like he smells something familiar. We don't know what it is. And then they're going through and they're like, oh my gosh, we made a mistake. And they come across an undead Carol and she has been zombified. Oh boy. And you're like, oh no. And so they're trying to deal with Carol. And, and this whole time Logan is like, no, I know that. I know that smell. We need to go. We need to yeah. leave. This is this is effed. Yeah. Scrap the mission. We got to go. And Magic is like, oh, please. So she slices <laughs> Carol and there's all this other stuff. And then they get ambushed by zombified Gamora, some zombified scrolls, some zombified Shi'ar. Like Galactus has been around. <laughs> <laughs> and we have another team going and tracking down some other energy signal that they saw. And they come across a silver surfer that is trapped inside this like membrane. Huh. They're like, oh my gosh, Norrin, what's going on? Are you okay? And then he de-silvers, and it's just like this undead Norrin rad. 
They're like, what happened to you? And he says, come and see, come and see. This is like the catchphrase for the zombies now. Okay. Come and see. And so he jumps at Johnny and bites uh, Johnny. And like, this is just a losing battle. More and more people, more and more heroes are falling to this Mm -hmm. zombie horde. Thor is tasked with getting out to go back to uh, War Machine, who is on the ship. On his way out of the mouth, he's stopped by a zombified gladiator. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. So at this point, we've lost so many named characters <laughs> that clearly this is another universe. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, Johnny's been bitten. Ben makes the hard call and kills Johnny. They're trying to leave. Sue gets turned. She still has all of her like force field powers and all that stuff. Oh, so she's able to get Reed. She gets basically the entire party. War Machine sees Thor coming up. And so he opens up the hatch. He's like, hey, do you guys need help? And it's a, zomb- and it's a zombie Thor. Of course. <laughs> Takes out War Machine. And then we have Spider-Man hanging out with Val and Franklin down on Earth. Just being like, yeah, you know, honestly, like your parents are the most skilled space explorers <laughs> ever. Don't worry about it. We're, yeah. we're fine. Incoming crash onto the planet. Enter, you know, zombie invasion. Yeah. And then they jump forward a few months or actually it seems like a few years. For okay. whatever reason, Franklin is still a child, but he's lost his powers. Okay. And we get some flashes. So the the current team that we have now is Depowered Kid Franklin. We have Val. We have Forge. We have Spider-Man. And we have Moonstone. Huh. Okay. As like the only survivors. Forge has come up with some interesting little zombie tech weapons for themselves. Okay. He has the a rifle connected to the top half of Cyclops' zombie head. And <laughs> so he's using that as their weapon. Awesome. Yeah, and so he, he's made basically usable weapons out of other dead mutants that they've come across. <laughs> like, Franklin is using a weapon of a hand that, sh- that shoots like this. Like just making a little gun symbol. Okay. Yeah. A gun uh gesture. I don't know who it is. Oh god, <laughs> that's gonna bug me. It's it dude, it's been bugging me for days. Dazzler, maybe? Maybe Dazzler kind of does that. Yeah, but like I don't know. <laughs> but it's 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 I've been so curious and I really <laughs> don't know who it is. I'm I'm gonna guess Dazzler and leave it there. Yeah. And then you also have a hand that's shooting out a bunch of fire. And I, I assume it's pyro. Sure. Because it's connected to a backpack, like a flamethrower. <laughs> so it's kind of fun. <laughs> nice. So they get ambushed by like the top half of zombified Nightcrawler. <laughs> They're just trying their best to survive. And as the issues go, one more, one more, one more falls. Yeah. They come across a encampment of Enos, which is a new term in this world for non-organics. Okay. Uh, led by Aaron Stack and cool. Viv Vision. Nice. And then you have got like Nimrod is there huh. and be- uh, Doombot is there and other beings with the techno-organic virus. Mm. Like Strong Guy ha- is now all technarchied out. Interesting. Punisher is there. And he he willingly took the of course you did. I, 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 so I assumed that as soon as you <laughs> said that he was there. <laughs> right. And you know, just betrayals here, betrayals there, yeah. people turning, people not. 
Valerie finds a hand that she is going to make a weapon out of. And she says it's potentially the most dangerous weapon that I could have. Okay. It gets revealed who it is later. I'm just building it up. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then so you have Peter Parker dealing with one of the guilt of some of the compromises he's had, he's had to make over these last years and his obsession with keeping Val and Franklin safe because that's what he promised Sue when she left earth. The kids get this idea in their head. Oh, that well, So they came across some research from beast at the X mansion that there could be a way to stop this. Okay. So in the original zombies run, they realized that if you could keep a zombie from eating for X amount of time, Mm. they get over their hunger Mm -hmm. and they basically just become regular people again. They don't turn back, but like yeah. they just become their zombified self and they're just hanging out. Okay. And then, you know, whenever they see like fresh flesh, the hunger kind of starts to come back. But as long as they don't eat, they're okay. Okay. And so they kind of explore that in the first runs. And so mm-hmm. they're kind of touching on that again in this of like, theoretically, we might be able to reverse it because yeah. there seems to be a time frame on their hunger and this and mm-hmm. the other. And so Frank and Val get this new obsession idea that they can potentially save their parents Hmm. so they're like we just got to find the galactus hive where their parents theoretically are and we'll be good and through that you have the other heroes being like yeah f you guys i'm not (laughs) that's a that's a suicide mission i'm not here for that i'm here to to help protect i'm not here for suicide missions so it comes down to just spidey and the two kids Mm -hmm. then we get the rest of the reveals so one reveal is that the reason why Franklin isn't aging and doesn't have any powers anymore is because during the initial invasion, he got bit. And in order to save him before he turned, Warlock offered to create a techno-organic clone of himself. And Doctor Strange could transfer his consciousness from that to the other. And so he's been this techno-organic clone this entire time. Oh, shit. And that's why he's not aging. That's why he doesn't have his powers anymore. So that got revealed. The origin of the zombie plague got revealed, which was super interesting. It was from the brood. The brood attacked Galactus and by killing Galactus and join and using him as their like whale, you know, they're like space whale travel thing. Mm -hmm. Their hive evolved because of the power cosmic into something new. And they call it the hunger cosmic, which is dumb, but basically the brood virus that they infect into other beings is yeah. now this new level has evolved into this next thing interesting which is now the this version of zombies i guess it also makes sense like they're portrayed as insects you know that mm-hmm. they go to lots of different places they they could be like a very perfect vector of disease just very yeah. carnal and and spacefaring and and living together in very tight quarters yeah so that was no social distancing no masking on those <laughs> teeth yeah so i really liked that that they decided that's how they're going to explore that one so it's a it's a brood based virus and that's what um what's his face uh wolverine recognized by smell. And then you have Val using her weapon, the hand that she made a weapon out of. And it was the hand belonged to this guy they called Remy LeBeau. Oh. <laughs> and okay. so she sacrifices herself, basically kinetically charges the entire Galactus hive. <laughs> <laughs> Sick. <laughs> 
So Franklin, now half Franklin, half warlock looking visually, has Magic's soul sword. And he uses the sword to teleport him and Spidey and Blade. And they found Wolverine, who his healing factor keeps him from becoming a zombie. And teleports them out as Val explodes the the, (laughs) the dead Sleezoid Galactus. Awesome. It's just great art. Yeah. And then we get a one month later look and it's a reprogrammed Sentinel. I guess Val does live. Whatever. (laughs) Okay. We have Val and Viv Vision, Blade training Franklin on how to use a sword, and Pete and uh, Wolverine just kind of living on their own. The last reveal is Franklin saved Silver Surfer's zombie head. And he's like, I found some files on the brood in, or some books on the brood in the X mansion. They talk about a queen. I didn't see a queen. So who's oh. your queen? Uh-huh. And the head says, you know, don't worry. You'll meet her soon. <laughs> and then the last frame is like a Halastar in the background. Oh. And so I assume the queen is Carol. Yeah. Because she was the first one that they encountered. Yeah. And then that was that. Cool. So none of the Marvel Zombies books are t- are numbered. They just have a new number. Like, it's like Marvel Zombies 1, Marvel Zombies 2, Marvel yeah. Zombies Return, Marvel Zombies versus Army of Darkness. And this one is called Marvel Zombies Resurrection. So I hope that they do another one and they follow up on it. But at the same time, they don't really need to. It's just right. fun reading a zombie book. Mm-hmm. They set themselves up well if they want to and yeah. if they... If it doesn't end up working out, then they still told a complete story here. Yeah. And like, it's just so much fun because they, you just butcher every single character. <laughs> yeah. And just go and tell a zombie, zombie story. It's, just, it's mm-hmm. so much fun. I love it yeah. so much. Awesome. But yeah, so that was that. And then the last one is Eternals. Yeah. This is to defy the apocalypse and it takes place. Uh, do you remember... During the Utopia days when San Francisco Golden Gate Park had the Sleeping Celestial. Yes. So this takes place around then. Okay. Because it has to do with the Sleeping Celestial. So Eternals are like connected to Celestials at the very core. For people who don't know or are curious or want like a quick little intro on the Eternals before we see them in theaters in like two months. So Celestials came down to Earth. Celestials are gigantic space gods. You've seen the head of one in the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Mm-hmm. They're also in the background in Guardians when oh, right. the Collector is introducing the different stones. Yeah, yeah. Stones. Giant Jack Kirby robot-looking space gods. Yeah. yeah. Celestials have come to Earth many, many times. You can go to almost any storyline outside of spider-man and there will be some sort of thing in the past that happened that had celestials involved yeah what the order of the shield fought off a celestial in like ancient greece or something like that sure. the first host four billion years ago as according to avengers was a dying celestial that came and died in primordial earth and that's what gave earth the potential that is humanity the Celestials came down after that and did some experiments. And they do this not just on Earth, but all around the universe. Yeah. All over the place. It's kind of their thing. It's kind of like the classic like alien civilization that spreads and sparks intelligent life, like the progenitor species mm-hmm. you know, theory. If you don't mind me stepping on your thunder a little bit. No, no. 
whenever they do that, they tend to make some sort of experiments. The taking species that are available, elevating some genetically, changing others in different ways. They tend to call their you know more favored subjects eternals and their least favored subjects deviants. For example, scrolls, the scroll race that we know are actually the deviant strand of the scroll race from that their experiments on that planet. Yes, on scrollos. Scrollos. And we live here on humanos. They also have been involved in the Cree homeworld. Mm-hmm. They like to just go and do experiments. They think very little of us. The Cree we know are, are descended from Eternals on, in that, right? And so that was a whole... I believe so, yes. The Eternals and the Deviants always are locked in endless battle against each other, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, they see each other as like anathema and... Yeah, so they actually talk about that a little bit in, uh, in this book. Oh, cool. As far as the, the quote-unquote struggle between Eternals and Deviants. Mm-hmm. But then also on top of that, for those who know Thanos... So this, this is about Earth human Eternals, yeah. Yes, everybody knows Thanos, but Thanos is the son of an Eternal. Mm-hmm. The Earth Eternals have had multiple power struggles between generally brothers, the, uh, and the one that wins is usually the king of the Eternals, and the other one usually leaves Earth to avoid further conflict. So it was Kronos and Uranus, and Kronos won, and Uranus went to Uranus. <laughs> funny <laughs> Imagine enough, that. and yeah. and started a society there. Then they decided at some point that they wanted to rekindle their battle with the Earth Eternals to try to win again. Yeah. They get stopped by the Kree in passing on their way to Earth and have to crash land on Saturn's moon, or Jupiter's moon Titan. Yeah. <laughs> and they, so they're like, okay, well, let's just establish here. And so they start building their a new society there. After that happened, another power struggle happened on Earth between Zurus and his brother, Alaru. I forget his brother's name. Doesn't matter. So he left and finds the Titanian Eternals, and they had had their own civil war. Everyone pretty much died. Sure. <laughs> Zurus's brother finds an Eternal woman there, and they single-handedly repopulate the, <laughs> sure, the uh, Eternals there. And then one of the Eternals that's born there is Thanos. Yeah. And so Thanos is the son of an eternal. And that's how that happened. It's a whole bunch of like <laughs> pass downs. Yeah, yeah. But I doubt, I know, I know they're not going to do that in the MCU, but <laughs> okay. in the comics, it, it happened. So yeah. anyway, so the eternal, so the celestials found early human and they performed some experiments on them and created 100 eternals and 100 deviants. And they made the Eternals very strong, very powerful, and they made the Deviants ugly, And but they could also transform, and they yeah. made it so they could repopulate really easily. Mm. If an Eternal had a child with a human, the, the child would come out human. Like, yeah. they cannot really uh, repopulate. Yeah. When they were first introduced, they had extended lives. Now they're kind of argued as immortal, but then yeah. they also have their own like revitalization chamber. So mm-hmm. if they die, it kicks off their chamber and brings them back kind of thing. Okay. The whole point 
behind creating the hundred deviants and the hundred eternals is celestials create the two and then they'll come back and reevaluate and see whoever is the prevailing race between the two. That's right. The celestials will harvest that winning race. Yeah. And if the Eternals win, then their energy goes to the Celestials and they create a new Celestial. Mm. And if the Deviants win, then that planet, and this is on a planetary scale, then sure. they get destroyed by what's called the Horde. And okay. the Horde is this faceless, giant mass. It's very reminiscent of the Annihilation Horde. Whereas the Annihilation Horde is a bunch of bugs and multiple races and all that kind of stuff. The Celestial Horde, they all all look the exact same. They're black and they have red glowing eyes because they're evil. And and they're basically just the, the counterbalance to the Celestials. Yeah. This sleeping eternal in Golden Gate Park mm-hmm. is heralding the fourth time the Celestials have come back to oh. gauge the Eternals versus the Deviants. Yeah. And okay. the first three times, they were all judged as, let's see where this goes. Okay. And so they don't do the harvest and they wait. Yeah. Evaluation still pending. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> the Eternals have been in the comics since the 70s yeah they had their own storied history back then and then neil gaiman wrote a legendary Mm -hmm. eternals book back in the early 2000s and kind of like brought them back into the modern storytelling realm he basically used that opportunity to kind of retcon a few things and he introduced this eternal named sprite Sprite is an eternal that is stuck in the in an 11 year old body because of that he was upset and went and wiped all the eternals memories except for this other eternal Icarus and I'm name dropping these guys and not really going into them because sure. we're all going to meet them in the movies but also yeah. it's not there the, are a lot of eternals and it's it's not worth worth the time to sketch out yes. every single one's past yeah also, I just I just looked up that Neil Gaiman run. It happened in 2006. Mm, there you go. So Neil, Neil Gaiman run, 2006. This run is by Charles Nauf, and it's uh, 2008. Cool. But it's 10 issues, so it's basically two TPs for me. Yeah. And, oh, boy. So, yeah, Neil Gaiman's <laughs> run, Sprite, is, is introduced to be kind of the baddie, uh, or at least the antagonist. Sure. Icarus is going around and awakening other Eternals. Neil Gaiman uses this chance to establish that they are, you know, millions of years old instead of like tens of thousands of years old as they were originally introduced in the 70s. I guess the other thing is about the Eternals is that they are the basis for like most of Earth's myths, you know, like all of these monomythic characters or, you know, gods, like you've got a guy named Makari and it's like, that's Mercury. You know, the stories that they wrote about Mercury, they wrote actually Makari, same with Thana and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just a ton of. Along with that, Zurus is the current head of the Eternals, and he went and made three Eternal cities. The first one was Olympia in Greece. Mm -hmm. While they were there, they were confused with the Greek gods, like as far as from from humans. And as we know, there are actual Greek gods that are real in Marvel. Yeah. 
So the Eternals went and met with the actual Greek gods <laughs> and were like, you guys, this is what's going on. Are you cool with us kind of like representing you guys here on yeah. Earth? And they said, yeah. cool. So yeah. Makari and, and Mercury, you have the legendary hero Gilgamesh, also known as Hercules and, and, and Heracles in some mythologies. Yeah. And so you have different Eternals showing up in different legends across the world because they're just these superpowered beings that lived among the humans. And yeah. that was the only way to explain them. Uh, this <laughs> is before the age of the age of Marvels, which is like kind of basically the last like 70 years in 616 yeah. time. This is all intro, but like, <laughs> basically what we get in Eternals to defy the apocalypse is the Sleeping Celestial chose Macari to be, or Makari to be the main contact with the Celestials, where previously it's always been Ajak. Ajak is pissed and jealous that he's been basically usurped and doesn't understand why. And so we get introduced to basically like a three-pronged civil war between the Eternals. Hmm. You have Ajak going around and kind of manipulating other recently awakened Eternals to undermine Zerus's reign. You have Druig, who is basically Rasputin. He, I believe he was Rasputin <laughs> in, in, in Russia. He, he looks like him, and I don't know for sure because I feel like Rasputin was a mutant in they, 616. Uh, but I don't uh, remember for sure. But it, it, it is what it is. But yeah. visually, he looks like Rasputin, and he is the head of a fictional Russian country. So, okay. like, Russian country. It's a country just outside of Russia. Sure. <laughs> he has been going around and gathering Eternals under his rule to go and usurp Zurus because it's all about becoming the Supreme Eternal, basically. Okay. Yeah, and so it's just kind of like the civil war between them and Ajak gets Gilgamesh on his side. Gilgamesh is hmm. each eternal kind of has like their own power that they're known for. Like yeah. they all have your base power of like strength, durability, yada yada yeah. yada. And then you have someone like Cersei who kind of is like alchemy. She can rearrange molecules and that kind of stuff. Ajak yeah. is kind of known for his mind control. Icarus is like your vanilla, straightforward <laughs> approach <laughs> to an eternal. Gilgamesh yeah. is all about his physical strength. Makari sacrificed flight for more speed. Interesting. And that was explored in Neil Gaiman's Eternals. And so all of them have their own like special identity, basically. And we basically are dealing with Makari having these conversations with the Dreaming Celestial and tensions rising between the three factions. And then Ajak kills Makari. Oh. And at the same time, Gilgamesh is destroying, trying to destroy the rebirth center, resurrection chambers. Okay. To keep Makari from coming back. The Dream <laughs> Celestial is like, oh gods, I don't have connection to Makari anymore. Well, I guess we're gonna put this world up for for auction. So, oh. <laughs> so uh, it's unleashes this like sleeping song that puts the entire world except for the Eternals into a slumber. Interesting. And so they're like, oh God, oh God, what do we do? The horde is coming. They're going to give up Earth. This is ridiculous. Oh my gosh, oh my yeah. gosh. And Cersei reaches out to sleeping to, to the dreaming celestials like, 
what am I supposed to do? She's like, you need to help Makari come back, so on and so forth. And basically it ends with Cersei mentally finding Makari and rearranging her own mock, pulling a Phantom X for Xavier and (laughs) giving up her own vessel to give Makari a new vessel. Sure, okay. So now we have no more Cersei, but we have Makari. Uh, He's back. Dreaming Celestial says, oh, you're back. Cool. So calls (laughs) off the horde. We survive the fourth judgment, basically. Sure. That is the story of how the Dreaming Celestial left Golden Gate Park. Because it's like, okay, well, we're good cool. to go then. Yeah, I always, I always wondered that because it was such a, like, across that when the X-Men were in San Francisco, you just see so many, like, shots, like, establishing yeah. shots of them up in, or they'd be up in the Marin headlands, and then you just see it standing at the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge in establishing shots so often. Right, yeah. It, it came to be a real, like, fixture. Yeah, so, cool. I guess another key thing that is worth talking about is the Dreaming Celestial is having a whole bunch of conversations with the Watcher. Oh, and we talked about how the Watcher is known for messing with Earth, right? <laughs> Did we and talk about watching. that? Oh, sorry. We talked about that on the super, Superhero Super, Superhero. Yeah, go, go. If you haven't yet, go listen to our guest spot on Superhero Ethics when we talk about the first three episodes of What If. Look at me turning yeah. a, uh, a continuity error into a shameless plug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but this dreaming celestial Stanley himself would be proud. As of 2008, <laughs> right? A no win or no prize. As of 2008, according to this dreaming celestial, Uatu has engaged and broken his Cree 347 times. <laughs> Bro, you you just you're just not you're not the watcher anymore. You're the doer. <laughs> right? <laughs> Are you familiar with the meme Ligma? No. Uh, it's the I think I think someone got Ninja. He's a streamer uh, with it. It's like oh okay. you know he's, he's sick with Ligma. He's like what's Ligma? It's Ligma balls. Ligma so anyway, ball. okay. Point yeah. is, there's a an Eternal named Legba, and every <laughs> time I read his name, I think of that meme, and it's very frustrating. Anyway, so <laughs> so Dream of Celestial is having some conversations with Uatu. And yeah. Dream Celestial's like, why do I feel like I want, why, why do I want to act? What is going on? <laughs> and Uatu's like, oh, you're developing this thing called emotion. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the Dream Celestial's like, are you, wait, what? Are you kidding me? Why? What is this? What? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, why, why, why am I developing this? And he's like, and Uatu's like, because humanity is fucking crazy. Isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's dope. Oh. And so while he's having this like mindscape conversation with Uatu, we have the Eternals. So one of the things that Eternals can do, one of their like defining abilities is they can form what's called a Unimind. And Mm -hmm. it's where any number of Eternals can basically choose a member among them to house all of their power and it creates this omnipresent consciousness and that's Mm -hmm. how they typically decide who the next uh, leader is going to be it gives them basically celestial level power and Mm -hmm. so they form a unimind after makari comes back to take over the dreaming celestial to uh, go and fight the horde so while that is happening the Dream of Celestial is talking with Uatu, and Uatu is like, I mean, I get it, man. And so 
on the cosmic level, this whole balance between celestials and the horde is all in service of this thing called the fulcrum. Hmm. Uatu is like, you have a way of saving this and keeping the horde away. Dreaming Celestials says, oh, there's a curious saying on Earth that I never understood, but now its meaning is quite clear. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. So (laughs) I guess I'll go and plead with the Fulcrum and see if I can get him to pass on Earth. We get introduced to the Fulcrum and where they are throughout the book. It's not not the biggest deal. But anyway, (laughs) Celestial shows up and says, I think I may be broken. And Fulcrum's like, why do you say that? Because my programming is changing. Changing in what way? My decision-making process no longer follows my primary programming guidelines. Please describe. (laughs) Decisions are not only taking longer to determine, they may also be changed multiple times for reasons unknown to me. Example, (laughs) my coming here today to make a totally irrational request. And what is that? Spare Earth. Hmm. I will do what you ask if you provide me with with answers to two questions. The first is, why? And Celestial says, because I think it's because I care. And he removes Mm. his helmet. This is the first time we've ever seen the Celestial remove the helmet. And it's this like fiery glowing head. Cool. And he's just like, yeah, I care. And Fulcrum says, I've been searching for a champion since the big crunch. (laughs) Time has passed. I have seeded planets for an, an immeasurable amount of time. I have watched other Celestials change and evolve into beings of greater power. Some have come close, but you, Dreaming Celestial, you're the only being to question me, to become an individual. You are no longer my device. In shattering that bond, you have proven a power equal to my own. The second question is, will you come with me? And that's the end of that conversation. And they shoot to 100 years in the future. (laughs) And and talking about, like, the legacy that is Eternals and stuff. Yeah, so now, you know, according to this, we have an Earth, or we have a reality, a 616, with two fulcrums. Interesting. Or an ascended celestial to become the fulcrum's companion in whatever sense. Right. Cool. Whatever that ends up meaning. And so, yeah, that was just, that was a, it was a lot of fun to read, but like every page I turned, I was dreading having to talk (laughs) about it because there's so much like both Neil Gaiman's run and Charles Nauf's run don't do any Mm, background mm -hmm. explaining. They just kind of jump into it and it's an easy enough read. It's easy to follow, but there's always these things in the back of your head of like, okay, Uh but like, what about what happened with this? Why is this happening? Yada, yada, yada. So I was like, man, this is going to take a long time (laughs) to go through. But if anyone wants like, uh, basically Eternals are going to become a reference for me of like, I want to read some Marvel, but not yeah, something not wrong. get bogged down into this was a like fun read. deep, deep continuity. You know, like they have their own continuity, mm-hmm. but much like in the MCU, I presume they sit apart from everything. They don't participate. Yeah. Uh, although you'll see, you'll yeah. see them because there was there's... you'll see uh, them join. Uh, you know, one Eternal or another join the Avengers every so often. Gilgamesh yep. was an Avenger. Cersei was an Avenger for quite a while. Uh, there might be a couple others that I'm not remembering, but yeah, I think those are the big ones. Yeah. And like, there's a whole bunch of scenes that I skipped over and like other yeah. plot points that like had pieces to do with the overall story, but it, it, it's not really like, yeah. I want people to cool. read, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it was, it was a, it was a fun read. And I know there's another Eternals book that came out. I think it's a little more recent because sure. of the movies, 
but I'm now kind of actually like excited to check it out. I want, I want to know what's well, hopefully by the time the movie comes out, I will be going to theaters again and we can, we can do a a more timely discussion on the movie when it comes out. Yeah. Um, So yeah, so that was fun. A lot goes on in these books, man. But uh, it was also two trade paperbacks worth of comic. So it was to be expected, but uh, yeah. Go check out Eternals if yeah. people haven't yet. Which probably haven't. <laughs> lots of <laughs> lots of good lots of good stories. All right, that's me. Should we jump into Nomon? Jump into Nomon, man. Yeah. So last week was our like two and a half chapters. Right. Yep. We had the end of the Ethiopian guy's name. <laughs> oh no, Barahun. Yep. Barahun's chapter and him creating the uh, Walk the Wall Black app because his granddaughter who created The Witness, which was also known as Project Nomon, got some like death threats. And that's my big takeaway because that app just is so cool. And we talked about, we kind of tangented yeah. on that for a little bit, but Barahun is a um, an, uh, painter and an artist and his granddaughter brought him in to create mm-hmm. the art for her game. The game was a huge hit. The antagonist, the like the controlling government body in the game uh, were called the Fire Judges, which is funny because that's the name of the company that they released the game under. So it was kind of meta and it just and it exploded in, in Britain and then Korea and then came out all over the place. Oh, and then Barry Hoon, granddaughter or Annie is her name. And the. They're like helper her, her guy. maybe lover. Yeah. Colson. Maybe lover. And then Barahoon sees his son and daughter-in-law or his, uh, in, son, in this like safe and, house and that's burning. Yeah. They're not actually there. It's just he, the, the memory of them because of the continuity between him and his granddaughter. Yeah. Yes. And they're in this burning building. And he's like, I had a way to which is like walk through the walls before yeah. I remember how or something like that. And then you have the Neith chapter that kind of remembers that and is she's processing that. And then we we have the the witness now questioning if she's okay and not answering her questions and trying to dodge the fucking subject. And it's frustrating me because that gets into his gets got us into this <laughs> whole conversation about about like what kind of transaction is this? And then <laughs> and then we finally get a Diana yeah. Hunter chapter where we talk about Diana Hunter has like created a dissociative personality in her head of, of Barahoon and Athenaeus and Kyriakos. Kyriakos, who act as kind of like defenders of her truth in her head. I forget the name of the process, but this was the same process that was intro- that was brought up by Tubman to Neith to try to figure out, piece together why she's coming across all these yeah. random Scheherazade Gambit yeah. memories. Scheherazade Gambit, yes. And we finally get to see a Diana Hunter thing. And the processors were confused because it was very strange. She has these fabricated personalities in her head, but there are actual people that actually with things that actually happened. So how has she fully realized these personalities yeah. in her head when they're actual yeah. people? And it's funny because Moon Knight did this <laughs> in a storyline. Really? Instead of the three Mark Spector and the other three personalities in his head, he had Spider-Man, Captain America, and Wolverine huh. as the personalities in his head. And he had tools like some knives and some shooters and a shield. And he let them take over 
to help him fight in his battles. And I didn't bring that up last week. And I thought about it when I was re-listening <laughs> to the pod this week. Cool. I just wanted to bring that up. One other minor note from the Bekele chapter, which will it, I'm only bringing it up because it'll come up in, in today. When he first, we got, we went into a little bit of backstory with him of his life in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And he described the first time he had a sort of spiritual experience that led him to start painting. And it was coals burning and he he was like in a party and suddenly he smelt anise and he saw like a hallucination of the wine coming out of everybody's glasses and swirling around and kind of deduced something similar to Chamber of Isis, perhaps, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So this is chapter nine. It's titled Ghost Books. It is <laughs> primarily a serif chapter. And uh, if you remember ghost books, that's the word or the phrase that the bookstore owner used for Diana Hunter's books, books that for all accounts are supposed to exist, but no one can ever find. No one has can credibly say they've ever read. So like I said, Sarah Font, we're back to Neath. After the Diana Hunter chapter, she wakes up encouraged and a little awestruck at finally getting a glimpse of Hunter's own mind. She's even a little worried if she'd taken all these fragments together at once in a single sleep, would she have started to lose herself? Because Hunter's mind, you know, being able to carry all of these very fully fleshed out, realized people at the same time is dense in a way that she's never experienced before in training or previous cases or anything. Quote, as if this recorded consciousness is more real than Neath's own. The only thing that can even come close for Neath is astronauts. She remarks, because one person being an astronaut relies on this giant technological network and economies of scale and the entire history of science and all that inevitably bleeds through to the individual. Quote, astronauts are persons who contain multitudes. That's the astronaut thing is a bit of an offhand reference, but put a pin in the mention of astronauts. Not that you have very many (laughs) pins left at this point. (laughs) So Neith seems worried about this case spiraling deeper, and she asks a frantic series of questions to the witness first and then to herself, starting with a character who was brought up in the Diana Hunter chapter. Tangentially, she asks, who is the madwoman who beat the witness? The witness answers, it is a null question. Witness enforcement in an interview has never been effectively countered. But who was she? A junior executive in a subcontracting firm. This is, remember, this is a... I don't know how deep they went into it, but there was some offhand mention that some woman went into a witness interrogation and it didn't quite exactly went how they expected. So it says she was a junior executive in a subcontracting firm. Her cognition was anomalous and emerged that she inhabited a fantasy world, which was almost entirely consonant with the real one, but variant in crucial respects. Understand, this was not a question of faith or personal perspective, but of unmediated experience. A small alteration in the Oniric psychoscape would have caused her difference to become extremely dysfunctional. Significant intervention was necessary to correct the defects in the deep neural structure. I guess by beat the witness, she means like confounded an interrogation to the point where you don't get at the real person. In this case, they kind of broke her apart and remade her anew. Neith starts asking herself questions about this. Is that it? Did someone examine this woman's madness and reverse engineer it? She's talking about Hunter here. You know, what's going on with Hunter? Mm -hmm. Was this uh, subcontractor woman whose name ends up being referred to as Anna, Anna Magdalena? Was her madness examined and reverse engineered? 
who knows so much about the system's interrogative branch and it's working? Was this done to Hunter or by her? If the former, where? No doubt there are neuroscience departments in 20 countries with a theoretical background, but the practical knowledge is another thing again. How many failures would be required to learn the trick, and what would happen to them, and why? Confound the witness, yes, very well, but to what end? To prove a point? Was this nothing more than a test piece for an army of impenetrable, implacable enemies to follow? Or was this the army, one old woman with a bad attitude, her entire master plan just to die? And if so, it is a very unsettling and existential challenge. If the interrogation killed her because she would not reveal her mind, and it cannot be proven that what was in her mind was genuinely of importance to the security of the nation, then what does that mean? The system trades in certainty, and by that token in the guarantee of fairness and security. If the certainty is gone, the other two are suspect. Does the legitimacy of the system withstand it? Or does the action of maintaining that it can hollow it out? So kind of setting the stakes here of the size of this case because again kind of like what you've been saying before the big data not only does it need all of the data to work it needs to serve everybody perfectly otherwise the whole the whole thing is is suspect because you've created a something a thing that's effectively above oversight it's such a black box right. and it's it's operations it's so beyond any person's ability even if you do have somebody like neith who is in charge of watching the watchmen, so to speak. She doesn't know the code. She relies on the witness as an inter- you know, as an investigation tool. So all of this is, you know, while she's technically above it, she can't effectively police it. Also in, in the last Neath chapter, she had called some constables over to go with her to Diana's house because even though the house itself is a Faraday cage, the witness is, you know, working just fine on the outside. And it never saw Lenrot leave the house, you know, after their confrontation inside. The constables arrive. They go back. It's the middle of the night. Lights are off. She's in the same spot where she saw the hot guy who was walking his dog in chapter one. And she's a little, you know, she finds herself thinking about him, a little bummed that she won't see him. This time she brings like a repeater signal booster thing inside so they can access the witness inside the Faraday cage house in case they confront Lernrot, you know, they want to be able to ID, you know, have live backup, all this stuff. Inside, you know, the bedroom seems normal, no papers, no mad scrawls on the wall, no plot to destroy the world. She enters one of the guest rooms and briefly something weird happens. She says... The room is pleasant, a little chintzy. It would have been a servant's, perhaps, back in the time this place was built. It has been decorated in a period style, floral and fractionally too sweet. There's a bowl of potpourri on the marble table, a pungent smell of anise. And then a single sentence fragment here in sans serif font. The two glasses at my feet hurled their contents into the air. Back to serif font. For a moment, the memory is almost fully realized rather than recollected. She can smell Addis Ababa, feel the heat and the sofa under her hands. No, London, now. So this little fragment of the Berihun Bekele memory when he is in his sort of like chamber of Isis is sort of bleeding through to her. She recalls it unwillingly. When she comes back to her senses, she notices a chair that looks out of place in the room stylistically and functionally. She immediately knows that it belongs to Lernrot, but Lernrot himself is nowhere to be found. Neith wakes up back at home, exhausted and disoriented, having searched the place to no avail with the constables for several more hours. No memory is unspooled when she slept this time. Instead, she wakes up to someone buzzing her front door. And this is a new character named Pippa Keen. 
Pippa is a health official with the Witness Welfare Directorate. The two have been colleagues for a while and are quite familiar, not quite friends, but maybe work friends. Quote here about Pippa. Hello, Pippa. Keen embraces her with a very proper reserve, then steps back. Are you really all right? Yes, I really am. And then she realizes she is. Keen grins. She is tall and lean and has a long face. The inspector thinks of her as strapping, energetic in that deep-rooted home country way that is both reassuring and annoying. Neith rolls her eyes and tells Keen she can't come in. Keen, of course, does. The whole moment is very typical of her. First to get Neith to say that she's all right and know it for the truth, and then to assert the soft prerogative of entry that her role gives her anyway, but so smoothly as to feel like a friend and not a colleague. Keen is as good as her, at her job as Neith is at hers, but she is also, as a person, perplexingly opaque. The inspector, as an officer of the witness, dislikes opacity. Living in an environment of almost total surveillance, Keen nonetheless contrives to be opaque. It is as if she has withdrawn her human self entirely inside her own head, so that all of her that leaks onto the external world is uniformly bland. Neith has seen her blandly concerned, blandly assertive, blandly compassionate. She has even seen her blandly flirtatious, butterfly fingers scratching as if casually on desired skin, eliciting a startled breath of response. She imagines Keen to be a blandly memorable in bed, although part of her wonders whether perhaps she might be so perfectly bland as to be forgotten immediately after closing the door on her way out. Only once has she observed Keen doing anything that seemed to be genuine in the sense of proceeding from some interior self briefly revealed. And she tells a story about how um, they were at a work party together with a bunch of families and the little boy kind of gets kind of like stops between the play space and the kitchen or something, you know, no parents, no friends and is a little stressed out and is about to cry. Neith queries the witness about what to do. And before she has an answer, Keen just kind of instinctually swoops in and does a little card trick for the kid, which happened to be the exact right thing to lift the kid's mood. Quote, the boy, smiling now, ran away to join the others without thanks, and Keen for one moment seemed to be perfectly content. Her expression did not change when she and Neith made eye contact a moment later, and yet somehow Neith felt her disappear again, and knew not to mention the cards or the boy when they met a few moments later by the buffet table. Neith, you know, goes through all the standard check-in questions to Keen's satisfaction, and then they make some small talks about current events, the monitoring bill. If you remember the proposal to put the witness tech in repeat offenders' brains, that kind of peters out. And as Keen leaves, Neith realizes that she was accidentally less than truthful with her in the checkup questions. Two of Keen's questions asked if Neith had had any hallucinations or flashbacks lately. And she didn't mention that episode in Diana's house just now, the one with Barry Hoon's memory bubbling up. Technically, it was neither a hallucination nor a flashback, so she wasn't exactly lying, but that probably would have counted for something. I wanted to bring that up because there's been a couple mentions here and there about how Neith could at some point just kind of give up or lie or give a false conclusion to the case, something that puts the case to rest and not deal with it after all. Because, you know, she's the check on the witness and there isn't a check above her, but she feels personally, you know, comp constitutionally compelled to uh, by something to dig further, to keep working, to find the truth, an obligation to the victim or to the witness or whoever. And when she does lie, like here to Pippa Keen, found it worth noting that she lies in service of keeping the, go uh, the case going rather than letting it end or, you know, something that might jeopardize her being able to continue on it. 
At this point, it's been four days since she started on the case, and she's reviewed about 30 hours worth of memories. And the intense familiarity of other people's minds is starting to make her feel uncomfortable and awkward in her own skin. Again, most people's entire minds, their psychic interrogations are only a few hours long. So this is already way out of, you know, normal bounds. She knows she needs to rest and then thinks about sexy dog dad again and decides to push on. (laughs) She's like, this could be so easy for me to just go and like let myself have a life. Like I wanted to call this guy and, you know, uh, set up a date with him or something. She's been thinking about him a lot. So but nope, she's got to keep going. Next, we have the sort of classic crime wall scene with the leads all thrown up and connections outlined, except instead of doing it with like post-it notes and red string, she just has the witness data viz it all and project it on the walls, which I thought you might be into. <laughs> and so, cool. you know, it's just like it, it's it's the classic like movie scene where, you know, they've got the tech and the person's just like, yeah, 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 just like waving yeah. their their <laughs> hands around in the air like crazy person and everything, you know. Like what Alex Mack used yes, to do. Yes, there we go. That is my original <laughs> reference to people putting up post-its and moving them around yes. as they needed. <laughs> and so it's, you know, dynamically searching, sorting, tagging, filtering, indexing, etc. And puts in key terms like learn wrote, fire judges, fire spine, walk through walls, chamber of vices, universal solvent, parentheses, alkahest. Witness looks for connections, finds a sentence from Hunter's own recording. And in the end, she was wide open to the machine, as if it had sliced her head into pages and turned the leaves on her spine. Leaves meaning pages, but also dual meaning here of spine. We've got fire spine, but we've also got the spine of a book. This doesn't really hit her satisfaction, so she adds more terms. Kyriakos, Anthonias, Berihun Bekele, Steganography, Cryptography, Apocatastasis, and Catabasis. We'll get to the last to those last two in a second. They were mentioned by Lonro in the opening chapter, but haven't really appeared otherwise in the text or the memories yet. Witness doesn't know what to do all, with all this. No results. She asks the witness if Berhun Bekele was a real person. It turns out that he was too, although it says there are some non-verifiable details in his story. The game, Witnessed, appears to be a later edition intended to represent the modern system in an unfortunate light. So this might be created or embellished or something by Hunter. But it, on the other hand, it is true that he created the painting Nomon that Kiriakos bought of the shark. Though it doesn't reference it by the name Nomon, and no digital record of it exists. But the painting was real. The the sort of like the metal thing sticking out of the canvas, and it's all painted in green green matrix numbers with a shark kind of like floating in, in the numbers. She writes down some early like ideas or areas of pursuit for her investigation. Number one. Lernrout and Hunter are connected by Firespine, by the fire judges. The real and unreal worlds are not entirely separate. Is that the point? Or is the overlap evidence of collaboration? Is Lernrout merely Hunter's messenger, or is it the other way around? Yet Lernrout professed to be as bewildered by Hunter as Neith herself, to be pursuing an inquiry. Line number two. Hunter, undeniably now, was possessed of a striking and unusual expertise. Her defense against interrogation is alarming of its own efficacy, even or especially if it contributed to her death, but also as evidence of a training she should not have. Either she got it in secret, which is terrifying, or her record is incomplete, which is more so. 3. The appearance of the name Nomon still troubles her. It is a feature of Hunter's narratives. It is, apparently by coincidence, the name of the case examining her death. 
Four, the perfumed Smith, that's Oliver Smith, proposes that the narratives in Hunter's head are aspects of her life in one way or another. Oblique and obfuscated though they may be, they are still about her. Perhaps that partial revelation also accounts for the success of her strategy of concealment. She was not resisting the urge to tell her interviewer everything. She was instead complying in a way that was impossible to understand. And number five, Mileki Neath still has no answer to the original question she has been tasked to resolve, whether Diana Hunter was wrongfully killed. But that question has broken into three subsidiary ones. Was Hunter's death part of an action against the state? If so, did that action end with her life or does it persist? And in either case, how did the situation degenerate to the point of her dying? She then recalls another phrase from Diana's most recent fragment, the one of her own narration. Quote, steganography is all around you. You will go down where all the ladders start. Steganography, we talked about a little bit. It's the practice of concealing information behind other information, which kind of goes dovetails with the sort of detective novel tradition of red herrings. Mm-hmm. So I think it's telling us to be to expect to see red herrings within this novel, but also to be looking for truths within that. The second part of that, you will go down where all the ladders start, is a misquoted line from a poem by W.B. Yeats, uh, or Yeats, I actually don't know how to pronounce it. It's titled, The Circus Animals is Desertion. I don't really have time to do another poetry reading on this. I'm already going to be pushing it, but (laughs) this poem's worth going into. Maybe, you know, once we get two or three more poems lined up, I'll do another reading episode. (laughs) But I'll, I'll link the text in the show description, so everybody go check it out. It's worth noting that the original line in the poem, right, it was misquoted by Lanrote. The original line, rather than, you will go down where all the ladders start, is, I will lie down where all the ladders start. So, there you go. That is pretty different, though. Yeah. So she takes a shower. She's feeling lonely. Lonely. She thinks about the dog walker again. She allows herself to start Googling him or, you know, witnessing him. His name's Jonathan Jones. She also finds herself thinking about Oliver Smith, but not in a sexual way, like with Jonathan. And she learns that he created the exact kinesic assistant that she used in their first interview. Smith did? Smith did, Yeah. Because, you know, he also made that serendipity flag. So this is his, his thing, kind of. Quote, son of a bitch. He wasn't talking to her. <laughs> he wasn't talking to her at their meeting. And he certainly wasn't being interviewed. All the time, he was talking to the algorithm, playing it like a cheap fiddle. And it, in turn, was telling her everything he wanted it to. But more than that, he was using it on her. He was playing her right back. Perfect timing, perfect body language, perfect cooperation. If he hadn't slightly overcooked it, if his arrogance, she suspects, hadn't pushed the deceit too far and tried to make her like him, even admire him, she probably would never have noticed. Son of a bitch. That's crazy. Yeah. She adds Smith and his company turned back trust to the crime wall. She goes back to the memory playback machine and accesses it consciously this time, but something's wrong. She can't control herself in this memory, even though she's conscious. And we have a sans serif section within an extended sans serif section here. It starts with doctors arguing and yelling that everything's going wrong and that Diana's brain is shutting down. The narrator is wondering what's what the fuck is going on. Then in front of her, she sees like in um, remember in, in the very beginning when Diana Hunter at the start of her interrogation was seeing words from her mind on the screen projected on the screen in front of her. That sounds familiar, yes. Yeah. 
Anyway, she sees words projected on screen in front of her, but they're in Latin and they translate to what the fuck is going on <laughs> and or, or what the actual fuck is going on. And then it continues. Where am I? How am I here? When I arise from this table, you wretched bastards, I'll make a new old woman for you. I still carry my novacula. Remember, Athenaeus lived in ancient Rome and she carried a small weapon she called a novacula. Ancient Rome spoke Latin. Right. And then it asks, Latin? Why am I seeing Latin and bad Latin at that? The technicians don't like it either. Not at all. One of them says, I'm dying. My brain is shutting down. They've given me an overdose, probably. Though it may be that there's some sort of interference pattern being generated by my mind, or possibly I'm having a stroke. I want to tell them it's not a fucking stroke. It's the gin in my head. The bloody, damned, impossible, monstrous thing that took Scipio, that ate him. That's not right, is it? I get the feeling this is breaking new ground. Certainly no one has ever died under the machine before that we know of, although that may be a bit of a lie because they seem to have a protocol. There's a crash cart coming now. It's as if a magic door has opened in the world and all the doctors who have ever existed are coming to save me. I think I'm thinking in parallel. Everything happens twice, once to her and once to me. On an old black and white television screen, I see Richard Feynman. He's talking about counting in your head. Do you see numbers or do you hear them? But at the same time, I see the djinn, Nomon, emerging from the panels of the chamber of Isis like a crab from a hole. And then another phrase in Latin here. I know you, spirit. I know you of a thousand eyes. Remember, that's Nomon of a thousand eyes was one of the things that it was called in her the scroll that she fabricated, fabricated about the Chamber of Isis, uh, that Athenaeus uh, fabricated. Got another quote here. Then someone new comes in. Both of you, shut up. It doesn't matter. Prep a clot bypass chip. Her brain's not communicating properly with itself. If I could move, I'd communicate just fine. I'm Athenaeus Carthenogensis. I know how to deal with this sort of shit healed just fine. Hang on. That's not my name, is it? Oh shit. I think, I think... I think not. Someone says flatline. You've got a look on your face. Do you want to talk about any of this before I push through or should I get to should I get to the end of the should I get to the end of this spot before we we discuss? This spot or this chapter? The the sans serif uh spot. Well, okay, this is I don't know if it's adding or if it's taking away yeah. from this theory that I'm brewing in the my Theories head. that you're brewing and in so the head are like, the most fun parts of this book, yes. <laughs> well, so originally I was thinking that Diana Hunter has figured out how to be immortal by she because she's in this world where we review other people's memories in order to like understand them or whatever, like do research murder cases, blah, yeah. blah, blah. So she has figured out how to become immortal by injecting her entire <laughs> psyche yeah. into the mainframe of the witness to the point where whoever accesses it she can download herself into the person that accesses right. it in this in this case Neil. right and so and that's why she's starting to have uncontrollable memories yeah. come back or feel uncomfortable in her own skin yeah yeah, because and so that's how Diana Hunter is starting to insert and rewrite herself into the Neith persona. Right. So I was going down that path and the existence of these three other personalities is just a show of force of the person that is Diana or Hunter. Or they could be 
precursors to her. Right. And so with this last little like Athenaeus being in control and being like, what the fuck is happening? I'm starting to wonder, maybe are all of these the same person over time? But the only, but that doesn't, the argument against that is Athenaeus, Kyriakos, and Berhun. Berhun didn't exist at a time when there could be a mainframe for them to upload themselves in order to pass on right. to the next accessor. So I'm trying to figure out <laughs> how this works. So like it could be the same person passed down through multiple bodies, but I don't yeah. know. I don't the know. The tech yet. isn't 2000 years old and also two of the character and no. also two of the characters were contemporaries with each other and interacted in the real world. So that's not like a generational thing. Yeah, so I'm sticking so I'm sticking to my this is all Diana and she has other personalities like created or injected okay. into okay. her own uh-huh. psyche and it's Diana trying to take over Neve's body to come yeah. back. So Diana sort of regains consciousness within the interrogation and comes back to someone asking if she can hear them. She seems to recognize the asker at first, but this person says that this is just Diana's pattern recognition overcompensating into conspiratorial thinking and says, uh, let me ju- adjust something real quick. The person says, this is a biological error. I'm afraid your brain is dysfunctional at the moment. Let me adjust this there. Now, do you think we still know one another? She says, oh, no, silly. This person here says that Diana had a, quote, transient isochemic attack. That's a sort of almost stroke. The key difference being that word transient. We've routed around it for you. And now there's a clever little device relaying information between the two living parts of your brain. So they did some some quick little brain surgery there to keep her alive. On Neif? No, 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 no. Sorry, on Diana. Oh, okay. This is still Diana. Oh, sorry. Yeah, we're still in San yeah. Serif. Mm-hmm. Quick little brain surgery on Diana to keep her, keep the interrogation going, basically. Keep her alive to keep the interrogation going. Uh, she has to stay awake and exercise her brain, focusing on connecting it back to her body. You know, having it practice the commands for physical movements in her arm and legs, such as skiing. This person here asks about, you know, her parabolic skis. She says, quote, but something is happening to me or happening again. I can see the words coming out of his mouth, see them written, but not hear them. Parabolic comes with diagrams, mathematics, inti- intimately experienced as touch. I feel it. I understand trigonometry the way you understand the smell of cooked meat. I don't need a pencil. I can do sums with my tongue. Impossible complexity. Impossible It hurts like opening your mouth as wide as you can, the corners bleeding as you stretch. Please, no one say universe. I don't want to, oh, drat. Universe is a very big word. There's too much of it uh, to hold in my head, in my mouth. I have to let it out and I'm speaking, but I'm speaking the language of God, a long line of syllables I cannot choke back. Prophecy or indelible, electable truth. Fa la ga pa na ma da di do no show mo me my thai lo fa fo fa fa go fo go gi gi go. <laughs> and remember, there was some weird syllable glossolalia uh, involved during Barry Humbekele's spiritual experience as well. Mm-hmm. 
Quote continues, it is a spell, it is alchemy, and it will transform the world. It is the apocatastasis, and it brings darkness to everything, brings Erebus to the land of men, and sharks swim in it, and in my blood, and I am thousands, and I am fa-la-fa-ro-jo-ji-jo. The good doctor, who is a bastard, says something profane, and that too has footnotes hanging in the night. Fa-la-ro-jo-ji, glossolalia and more, all inside a bottle too small to contain it. And then... Mercifully, the world is transformed. Then we have another short Diana memory of her own self, apparently. She's in a place called Burton, quote, because we had to call it something. There's an English expression, gone for a Burton, which means something has fallen over and broken or been dropped. No one knows why it means that. The expression just appears in the middle of the 20th century. It's never explained. Burton seems to be some sort of psychic spy training facility, or not psychic, but like mental spy training or special operations insurgency training facility. Curriculum part one is Richard Feynman says, and we kind of got this in the last uh, previous quote here. Feynman noticed among many of his more startling insights that different people counted silently in different ways. Some apparently whispered to themselves, but never spoke while others saw numbers. The ones who whispered could be distracted by words, and most especially by shouted sums, but the ones who visualized could not. They could carry on a conversation and still keep count. We at at Burton began by mastering whichever one we could not do. Then we were required to follow two separate streams of numbers. Then we learned to count using other senses, touch, taste, scent, even balance. What does 55 feel like? How does it smell? I know the answers, but you wouldn't begin to understand them. When we could keep track of five sets of numbers all at once, we did the really extreme stuff. Waking state lucid dreaming and elective multiple identity architecture, IEDs for the mind. We lived symbols, puzzles, philosophical loops, and psychological paradoxes. We learned that to lie to a machine, you don't have to be a perfect liar. Rather, you only need to believe that everything is a lie. If the world is not real, if everything we see is a simulation or a game, then the fictions we append to it are no different from the ones which come to us through our senses. And it is true. The odds overwhelmingly tell us that we exist inside a computer. Any universe that can support technological life probably will, given enough time. Any technological civilization will develop modeling and will, in a comparatively insignificant span, be able to model everything that a planet-bound species could expect to encounter. That being the case, the simulation will rapidly reach the point where it contains simulated computers with the ability to simulate, likewise, everything a planet-bound species could expect to encounter, and so on and so on, in an infinite regress limited only by computing power. You've heard that theory before. I mean, the whole we're, we're all living in a beat. simulation thing. Oh, the how to beat the. Yeah, right. I <laughs> I tend to that's my strategy, actually, in games that involve lying like werewolf or a secret Hitler or any of those sort of like social deduction mm-hmm. games. I, I try and fuck with my baseline to the point where like everything <laughs> that I say is suspect. Because I know I'm mm-hmm. not a tremendous, I'm not a particularly good liar. And it freaks Rachel out so bad. She suspects me of everything all the time. She's like, why are you being so weird? You're being really weird right now. I don't like it. Even if you're not the target, I just want to get you out of this game because you're being too weird. That's hilarious. <laughs> That's funny because like my approach is different. And it's like the opposite side of that yeah. coin. Where I can just believe that everything I say is the truth. Okay, yeah. 
<laughs> as far as like how I present it with like the confidence. Yeah, yeah. Cause I am, I am a really good liar because <laughs> I'm just naturally sarcastic. Yeah. And so like, I can just say everything in the same yeah. tone, but so, okay. I guess to a trained professional, I'm sure I have micro <laughs> expressions yeah. that would tell, yeah. but like to the average Joe, I don't think anyone can tell when I'm lying. Yeah. At least no one has straight up said, I can tell you're lying. So without me explicitly showing it, nobody's picked up on it before. So that's that like, that's like just the almost the exact opposite approach of what (laughs) I do. Yeah. Believe everything is a lie versus believe everything is true. Yeah. (laughs) Also in those games, I tend to be really terrible. I just like, I try and like explain like the logic of why I should or should not be suspected in any every given situation, you know, I'm like, well, this happened, but also this happened. So it's a question of whether you believe this or this. And Rachel's like, stop it. You're just being really, really weird. And I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because at least your your take is a lot more controlling. <laughs> My take requires that I'm the smartest person. Right. Learn. Yeah. Because other people will start to like can put the pieces together and be like oh no you're fine or <laughs> oh dude no we're getting yeah right yeah now. yours i think is a little more adaptable <laughs> it, it but the thing is it doesn't work for me like in among us i would just <laughs> i'd be like okay so it's a question of whether you believe you know that this happened or whether you believe that this happened they'll be like i'm just gonna shoot you like i'm just gonna vent you you're you're out this <laughs> yeah well so in among us there's a time limit right and, and like there's there's so that like adds in this X factor of panic yeah that's true of wanting to make a decision but when you have something like like a tabletop yeah. game like the werewolf or whatever you just go forever you can manipulate the conversation that's really true as long as yeah. you want I kind of miss Among Us a little bit You'd give it another shot sometime yeah why not anyway it kind of continues on from there the odds therefore are negligible that we that we live in the origin universe and considerable that we are quite a few steps down the layers of reality. Yeah. Who really inhabits whom and who is in control? So back at Burton, they move on from numbers to alphabets to symbols and then mixing physical activity and and fighting training with code breaking and maintaining mental cover. Quote, of the 300 students and 20 staff, by the end of the year, I was the very best. There's nothing I cannot beat. I can push my brain to places no one else can go, even as I learn to my own destruction. Oh, Robert. I was so angry with you and you with me. And now here we are and everything is bad. Fala jo ri jo ji jo ja fala fa ah 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 ah. And now we go back to Neith. So that's the end of the, the memory fragment there. Neith emerges from the memory, feeling Diana's stroke in her own mind and body. She wonders if she's been impaired, reshaped, burned. That's a Sorry, that's a quote there. She goes through some mental diagnostic tests and the system says she's clear, but she doesn't quite feel right. Quote, she stays very still trying to work out if she can walk, if she can speak. Has she lost something undetectable or will it be like Hunter, something obvious? Her name, her her deductive ability? What is worse? She feels she knows Diana Hunter now, not things about her, but the woman herself, the way she knew her own body and her own head. She knows Hunter like an old friend or an old chair. The impression of her marked as if by long acquaintance. 
borrowed understanding, stolen. Does that sort of thing have to go somewhere when it is torn away? Was it ripped from its owner and somehow stored? Mitochondrial metadata riding the signal, baked into her by the trauma of a witnessed stroke. Witnessed. Too many layers in that to unpack now. (laughs) She asks the witness about the word Burton. It gives her some unrelated information and answers, although... Interestingly, it interprets the the phrase to go for a Burton rather than to break or fall or be knocked over. It interprets that phrase. It says it means to die or disappear. So she asks it, you know, whether it was a special operations training ground or anything like that. She gets nothing. She cross-references Burton to the crime wall. No meaningful connections to any of that. So she asked for spurious ones. I've got a quote here that feels like more of an Easter egg red herring, but it's a fun one. So I'm going to go for it. (laughs) It says, Carl Ladbroke, actor, 1983 to 2040, took the role of Elias Lundroth in the biographical film of his life. English title, Epic, produced by Boxlight Malibu in 2039. So a film that comes out in 2039. He had previously portrayed Pythagoras in the romantic comedy Earth Goes Round the Sun. (laughs) Comes out in the year 2022. The case name assigned to your investigation of Hunter's death is Nomon. In one scene of the film, the angle of Ladbroke's arousal is compared unfavorably to a geometer's angle, or Nomon, by the heroine, played by Sarah Ndibe, born in Burton-upon-Trent, town in England, in 1999. The critical reception was poor, but the film did well at the Brazilian and Chinese box offices, making it a financial ex- a success. Do you wish to explore this pathway? No. <laughs> oh, man. Can you imagine if one of those comes out? I know, right? That would be the ultimate sign that we are living in the simulation. That would be are the fig- ultimate Simpsons moment. <laughs> we are figments in Diana Hunter's consciousness. So anyway, she leaves the flat. She rings up her friend Tubman, the Watson figure. She asks, have you ever heard of anyone being injured by a recording? He says, what, a physical injury? Definitely not. People have wobbles if they get too muddled up in records from the dark side. There are a few idiots every year we have to untangle from trying to take on viewings of patients in deep psychotic trauma. Four years back, there was a fad for a blind man who'd worked out a kind of sonar. Some of the young bloods thought it would give them superpowers. They really liked the sexy parts, too. Apparently, his physical whatnot was pretty intense. Arseholes. <laughs> so, it's pretty clear that Nick Harkaway, between that, oh, I didn't, I didn't talk about this at the top of the show, between this Daredevil reference and he tweeted about Thanos a couple of days oh, yeah. ago, pretty clear he's a Marvel fan. So... Maybe we can get him on the show. Maybe we could get him on the show. You know, in the off chance that he's listening to this this podcast. What up, Nick Harkaway? <laughs> Hi, Nick. Well, but I mean, we should tweet him. I did. I, I mean, he liked my my reply You've to his tweet, and he's and liked your tweets. I know. He right? liked my retweet. Both of them had a link to to the show. So I feel like we should tweet him and be like, "Hey, we're getting to the end of the review of, of No One." Would love to have you on. Yeah, for sure. I think that'd be amazing. That would be awesome. So it continues on. Uh, Neith asks, what happens to these people who get the wobbles during an interrogation? And he says, oh, nothing in the end. They sleep it off. A few of them need a hug and an aspirin from Matron. That's me, by the way. Stop pissing about and tell me what's going on. Neith says, she had a stroke, I think. I, was, I wasn't ready. 
Oh, nasty. Yes. Well, I expect that was horrible, but it's not going to mean you have a stroke or anything like that. It's not. If you go to the theater and Julius Caesar gets stabbed, I know. This seemed a little bit more immediate than just sitting in the front row. First person, yes. Like one of those games where all the aliens are coming and all you've got is a tin opener. It's first person like a video game, but that's all Maliki. You're never going to feel quite the same way about someone having a stroke because now you know a bit more of what they're going through. But even so, you're just a watcher. All you really know is how it feels to be someone who isn't having a stroke, experiencing what it is to have a stroke. Nothing happened to your body. Nothing bled into your brain. It was horrible, but that's all. She asks what to do to recover. He suggests get drunk. Instead, she keeps working. <laughs> Oliver Smith is traveling until Thursday, so instead she goes to the university to meet with another of the leads that Tubman mentioned the last time they talked, Professor Chase Paquette. On the stairwell in the office, she runs into a student who the witness flags as a possible threat because he's dressed like Adolf Hitler and she nearly beats the shit out of him. Though it turns out that this was a fashion statement. He's actually dressed in an intentionally ambiguous way to trick the witness into thinking he's dressed like Hitler when he's actually dressed like Charlie Chaplin spoofing Hitler from the movie The Great Dictator. Quote, it's a political engagement, allegedly. The attention is to jolt you out of your established patterns of thought, to change the way your mind processes information and force you to examine it more closely, specifically to point up the difference between machine-based semiotic analysis and human parsing and responses. Apparently, deliberately fooling the system is big fat amongst the youngs, the youngs these days. <laughs> right? So cool. Oh, my gosh. And then we've got an introduction to Chase Paquette here. It says, uh, she's a formidable person, wide and wise and getting on, with a thick pneumatic body and powerful legs from midlife alpine walking. There's a picture of her just inside the door with an actual mountain goat. I'm Chase. It's from the French word for chair. Evidently, at some point after we left the old home continent for Marseille, my family made its living from the cutting and sharpening of wood into uncomfortable furniture. I know it was uncomfortable because I've sat on it, awkward in all the wrong places. I like to introduce myself that way. It lets people know what they're in for. <laughs> what they're in for, the inspector realizes, is quite a lot. It is impossible in the presence of Chase Paquette, who has so many learned qualifications she has discarded all of them and just gives her name, to be anything but a student. Even her colleagues at high table, no doubt, fall into the role. So Neith asks, could you codify a person as text, put them into a book? This is kind of the offhand thing from the bookstore scene, something that was mentioned there. She answers, whatever Chase Paquette was expecting, it evidently was not this. Her eyes narrow as if she is about to poo-poo the idea, then widen as the denial collides in her head with the unwilled effort of some other aspect of self to work out how such a thing might be done. She kind of chews on it for a while and eventually says, no. But, but, I suppose you could take the tone, not the person, but the personality, like poetry, Poetry is a shotgun aimed at our shared experience, hoping to hit enough of the target that we all infer a great bulk of information conveyed as implication and metaphor in an approximately similar way, making a unity with poet and reader. Now you see why I have to do poetry hours on this podcast. Yep. Paquette makes an accompanying hand gesture. I always wanted to take a connectome image of, of a group of subjects before and after reading a poem. Or better, keep them in isolation and give them a perfectly similar experiences for a week and then make them read a novel. See how much it changed them. Would it matter if it was a good novel? How long did the change last? Was the book permanently incorporated into the connectome or was it just a stone in a pond, all splash and ripples and then gone a moment later into the everyday duck shit that rules us all? She snorts. 
If you took the picture before away from the from the after picture, Neath observes, you'd have the connectome image of the book in the mind. Paquette starts, insofar as such a thing makes sense, she says, yes, you would. It would be like a single frame from a moving image, a few frames actually, I suppose from significant instance in the sequence allowing the brain to piece together a narrative flow. And before you ask yes, I suppose you could generate at least a skeletal outline of a text from a person's connectome. A mold from which one might derive a narrative, which would then be as much of that person as any such object would be, which isn't much. Yes. Packet's eyes light for a moment with an inventor's seal. What would be more interesting and much more disturbing and illegal would be whether it was possible to create a mold for a text which would move the broad shape of an audience member's connectome closer to that of a desired shape. Not putting a person into a book, but iterating that person into the minds of anyone who reads it. Neath responds, like choice architecture. She's not saying this, but this is narration. Choice architecture being the use of big data and nuance to influence political decision-make. The attempt to corrupt the political process by deliberate manipulation of the cognitive limitations of the human mind. Almost all restaurant menus use it, and even knowing what it is, diners are still influenced. The steak or the lobster is always mountainously expensive. Once you've rejected that, the less expensive stew seems like a bargain, and having saved money, you splash out on drinks. Subscription prices and two-for-one deals are the same, but in political context, the system reserves the right to prosecute it as a crime somewhere between fraud and treason. Paquette says, yes, fascinating idea, gratifyingly impossible, or in terms of possession by a ghost book. Impossible for everything beyond the broadest statements, love good, hate bad. Everyone begins with a similar junk pile and has to build a city, but everyone goes about it rather differently. Suppose you might imagine the trick for one person, but not a mass, and it wouldn't last. Paquette also identifies herself as a fan of Pulp Fiction, echoing the conversation between Neath and Lernro had in Chapter 1. Makes me think that we should be looking for classic detective tropes and similarity, you know, so red herrings, identity transforma reveals, transformations, etc. Eventually, Paquette decides to cut around all the bullshit. She says, let's dispense with the idea that I don't know whose interview we're talking about, shall we? Because it's, you know, it's front page news. In fact, when she and Pippa Keen were, were talking, making small talk after the check-in. You know, they're, they're like, we would talk about current headlines, but Neath is a large portion of the current headlines. This case is a big deal. So all they really have left to talk about is the monitoring bill. The inspector sighs, then nods. Paquette says, and no doubt you were looking for her books. No, don't get excited. This isn't one, or not exactly. It's a critique, the most I have ever been able to find. So she pulls this book off the bookshelf and it's a critique of Diana Hunter's novels, unsigned. So Paquette assumes that it was written by Diana herself. And this was the real art piece, the novels themselves maybe having never existed. Borges did shit like this. So <laughs> clear influence on the novel. I'm going to read the, the full thing here. It's going to be, there's a lot of just absolute nonsense and academic battle and babble in here. So bear with me. Hunter cities are all one city. Each house opens its door onto a street that is all streets. Cobbles reveal themselves from a given perspective to be bitumen or limestone flagging, and all roads are runways, canals or rivers, so that one might go from London to Boston to Amsterdam as easily as from number 9 to number 12. Counting. Growing bolder, one might leave the immediate white European neighborhood and pass on to Cairo or Kyrgyzia, to Santiago de las Vegas or Addis Ababa. The journey of a thousand miles does not begin with a single step. It is one step. Humanity exists in a unitary urban sprawl whose laws may vary and whose travel infrastructure may make 
may take more or less time in the conventional space to connect any given part with any other. But in these fictions, there is no such difficulty, and the conceptual truth becomes the practical. The reader and therefore also de facto protagonists move from one room to the next without passing through the intervening space, because there is none. Life is a series of cinematic elisions, and we do not wait in the waiting rooms or get bored. We simply cut to place and time in the world, as in the act of consuming the text, are notional and matter of opinion, like Wilhelm Reich, prisoner who walks through walls. In Querendo, the modern reader, contemporaneously convicted as a killer by Mr. Murder, voluntarily incarcerates herself with the narrator in a prison constructed with, by the mad cartographer in the distant future, awaiting the judgment which has rendered hundreds of years before the five cardinals as a part of their plot against the Roman Empire. Perhaps every day is four, the 14th of June, 1986, the date upon which the world came closest to a nuclear war. Perhaps the bombs fell and the release of energy has utterly extinguished temporality and we exist in a permanent exception to the rules of physics we painstakingly assemble. In the apparent reality I experience, as surveillance breaches across the walls of the mind itself, identity takes flight and seeks to exist across physical locations. If this cannot be done in actuality, it is done symbolically and psychologically. We locate ourselves outside our bodies, in speech, on screens, and in art, becoming more than single loci which can be constrained, finding escape and dissolution into a suspension which from which we precipitate at each point of consciousness interaction with others, just as we are told that matter itself may only exist at the point of collision. We avoid the transmissible psychopathy of de-individuation only by accepting a redefinition of individuality. At the same time, an increasingly ontological science tells us that the world we see is no more real than the ones we imagine. The universe is not what it appears to be at our clumsy macro-Newtonian level. Are we simulations? What does that question even mean? How is an informational model of a quantum world different from a quantum world made of information? As government takes steps to control the insides of our head, freedom reaches to a future where even physical reality is not legislated, where what is written in stone is no more fixed than dreams or water. To escape a fascism that has become internal, we embrace an external world that is ultimately fluid and where the tyranny of the real itself is moot. The corollary is that a book is not finished until it is read. The writing is not complete until what is said has passed from the physical volume which gives it sensory reality into another mind where it kindles thoughts and impression, a whole understanding of what it means to be, ignited on foreign soil in an act that is either erotic or imperialistic, but in either case miraculous. We become one another. Ink on paper is the frozen matter of a person, a snapshot of selfhood in fungal spores, waiting to be quickened in our borrowed mentation, thought shaping itself in us, of us, to emerge from us. If all cities are one city, does that not also imply that all persons are one person? And if so, who? Diana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, it's incredibly dense. <laughs> they analyze this quote a little bit. This is here. Peckett says, it could mean anything. I think that's part of the point. Information so densely specific that it becomes poetic and illusory. Obfuscation as indoctrination. What you puzzle out for yourself, you must by definition incorporate into who you are, even if you reject it. She's forcing us to see the world through her eyes in order to understand what she said. Then she gives her recommendation. She says, in the first instance, your interrogation narratives comprise a story about lies and truth. 
Someone is always lying. Someone is always telling the truth. Sometimes the things are being done at the same time by the same person. Fraud becomes reality. There are cuckoos everywhere, laying eggs in other people's nests. I take it your subject was not enamored of the interview process? No. No, she wouldn't have been. <laughs> Ornery old cow, that much seems obvious. This from Chase Paquette implies an immensity of stubbornness that is daunting even to, con to contemplate even now. And she says, however, not everything is so circular. The Chamber of Isis is a single solid point. Archimedes is fulcrum, the place where things can actually be real, or where the primacy of realities is assigned. Athenaeus can raise her son from the dead. The vase can be unbroken, the world made whole. The alkahest is the solution to everything, the holy grail, a universal solvent that will heal all wrongs and empower the merest mortal to judge gods and bind monsters to her will. A new beginning is promised in the conjunction of things. The chamber of Isis is not so much a place as it is a circumstance. A perilous one, as the chap as the chapel of the Grail always is. There must be sacrifice. And kind of identifies Neith as being in the sort of symbolic storytelling archetype of a Grail knight on a Grail quest. She recommends let the story run out. When it's done, it's done, and we're back with the real person. Neith says they did that, and it didn't work because the story just rolled on and on. Yes, you expected that, I suppose. If I was doing this, I'd anticipate that, and I'd manage things so that the act of looking would trigger the creation of more narrative. The observer's scrutiny is the inception point. So long as the interrogation continues, the story does too. A kind of feedback loop producing a functional infinity. Wherever you look, there's more. Practice would do it, like learning to know when you're dreaming. The really clever part is that over time, the interrogation would reinforce the neuroplastic architecture rather than breaking it down. Says, exhausting though, yes, yes. So what, what I'd do then, if I was running the interview and it wasn't working, I'd try to make the individual storylines untenable. I'd nudge to make them painful or sad or frightening. I'd make them more, I don't know, crowded. Crowded? It's not quite what I mean. I'd raise the level of coincidence. You'd keep bumping into the same people until it was just absurd. The goal is to collapse all the narratives back to the origin, the real person. The flaw in her construction is the one that has to be there. They must all ultimately revolve around a single point, which is her. Can't escape your own head. The conjunction, the chamber, the alkahest is the solution. She's telling us how to win and then making it almost impossible to act on the information. Perhaps if the narratives become implausible in their own terms, that gets harder to resist, which is why they are all on some level fantastical. Magical thinking allows her an elasticity which neorealism would not. In the end, the conjunction only occurs if she wants it to or if she can't stand the alternative. Do you get any sense of her at all? She's leaking. She should be unconscious, but she's in there. Yes, she will be. She's holding an umbrella open in a storm. And that's my next step if I'm the interviewer. I'd put something in with her, a new narrative that would draw the others back together. Done right, she wouldn't even know it was there. She'd think it was her own. Especially under stress, the mind would adopt it. If she's good, she'll instinctively weave a new thread into what she's already doing without even recognizing that it's a threat. She's torn herself apart. She wants to come back together. And composition is collision, synthetic as much as it as original. Authors are accretors, so you'd have to prod along, it along. Keep it yours. Hope to get inside her design and appropriate it before your design is itself appropriated. A cuckoo, yes, a counter-narrative. It might already be in there. So if someone did do that, then if they were any good, you can't be entirely sure which threads are hers and which belong to the interrogation team. No, 
If you were able to be sure, so could she. One last quote here. It's an obfuscation, a shell game, a rigged one on both sides. Whichever shell the interrogation uh, interviewer chooses is the wrong one, but he can make her play over and over again until she slips up. She accepts that. In fact, she wants to be known. Why? You mean what makes me say so? Because she's leaving you clues. If all she wanted to do was block the interview and she was prepared to die, these narratives would mean it could be so much salad. They not, need not be deep or profound. They could be junk mail, advertisements for foot powder, the endless duck shit, yes? But they're rich. At the very least, she wants to advertise the enormity of her act of vandalism that is the trespass in her head. Look, she says, here is a palace of reason that you have made into rubble. Hmm? And then she talks about the Grail Knight and the Grail Quest a little bit. She says, You are the Grail Knight, a shield of the weak on a holy mission to heal a wounded land. You must ask the healing questions. And this is the trouble with being that person. You're caught in a narrative. You come to me for resolution, but all I give you is fresh and larger tasks. I don't even have a shield, Neath objects. Really? Pequet says. You don't, eh? Well then, take out what is in your pockets and lay it all on the table. And of course, when she does, there's her witness badge, gleaming in the half-light. Aegis, surmounted by an eye. Good enough for me, Chase Peckett says. Seeing Neith's dismay, she laughs. Neith, on her way home from the university, she notices a security camera on a bus and feels like it's staring at her. She queues up all her files on Oliver Smith to prepare for the next interview. You know, he's traveling until Thursday, but she'll see him then, and she won't get beaten by his kinesic assistant manipulation again. As for the agency he works for, Got a quick quote here. The Turnpike Trust is one of those deceptively boring backwaters of the government where power begins as the consequence of a willingness to take on jobs that are necessary but unglamorous and thereafter accumulates because they're already doing so much and doing it tolerably well. It is not technically part of the state, but it is a charred and, it chartered and contracted non-governmental actor. In fact, the trust is not new but very old, having been formed to provide highway infrastructure before the Victorian era and never in quite, quite entirely gone away. So then she puts it all together. This was Oliver Smith. Uh, the, the voice, the person who entered Diana's interrogation, that was Oliver Smith. And perhaps his use of the kinesic assistant on her was to help him obscure the fact that she knew Diana and was involved in this case obscure that information from Neith during their interview. That's the end of the chapter. I realized that I think I might have skipped an important quote. So I want to go back and talk about Anna Magdalena real quick. So the patient's name was Anna Magdalena, and she was a probability and risk analyst. She was ultimately diagnosed as suffering from a rare form of epilepsy, which in her everyday experience was aligned with, but not actually the same as what anyone else in her position might have felt as her risk analyst, but which occasionally and unpredictably produced seizures manifesting as transient delusional paranoia. She would go from utterly calm to terrified in a few seconds and back again. The syndrome was not ameliorable by therapy or medication. It was a crudely physical dysfunction firing in ineluctably in her brain and ruining her mind. Ultimately, her phys physical health was affected, the sudden flooding of her endocrine system with stress hormones leading to a dangerous tachycardiac exhaustion. The extent of the problem came to light when she submitted herself for neural interview during a paranoid spasm, believing she had uncovered a criminal syndicate. The sudden change in the structure of her thoughts meant that direct neural interview would work only during her lucid periods, when she had minimal recollection of her manic ones. During the manic ones, the flurry of signals in the brain overloaded the probes. There was simply too much going on. 
Doctors hypothesized that part of the issue was a kind of noise, like the roaring of a gale inside her head, which produced the negative emotional response that then became paranoia. The system proposed and ultimately carried out a radical medical intervention in which her corpus callosum was partially severed. Counterintuitively, the severing allowed her to recohere, to become singular, but, in this, but this in turn triggered a shift in personality and almost total memory loss. Her atypical neural structure was more profound as a consequence of her brain's decades-long attempt to, over, to compensate for what was happening than anyone had realized, and the operation was classed as a significant, if fascinating, failure. The patient neither technically survived nor entirely died, but was fundamentally changed without life ever departing her body. One person died, and one person was reborn, and the new individual went on to work within the system as a productive member of society, but even so. And then she opens an image attachment to half wondering if she's going to see Diana Hunter's face in the picture of Anna Magdalena. But instead, it's a, uh, quote, a narrow woman in recovery, painfully thin and with lank hair falling around her shoulders. She recalls that in one of Diana Hunter's memories, she said she had uh, remembered a term, poor pale Anna. She says, oh, they're fir on first name terms. Did they know each other? She asked the witness. Witness says there is no record of their having met. She says, check that, please. Find out where Anna is now. And then while the witness is working on that, she moved on to other things and hasn't gone back towards it yet. So that's, that's a hell of a chapter right there. Hmm. Jeez. Okay. It, this, yeah. There was, I mean, this was like the most analysis heavy chapter and the most like trying to make sense of what the hell is going on uh, chapter that we've had so far. Okay, so <laughs> in science, <laughs> the idea of you influence the outcome by observing the outcome. Yes. He's kind of taking that to this other perspective of... You can live forever by continuing the eternal interview interrogation. As long as that's as long as the interrogation is observed, the interrogation will continue. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it kind of explains the intensity of the memories and the and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think you mentioned after the last episode. It was episode four of the anime, and we're finally starting to see the structure and, and what the, how the plot is going to move now that all the concepts mm -hmm. and characters are introduced. Do you still feel that way, or do you feel like it's been cluttered I feel even further? Like, I feel like that was a semi-red herring, I guess. So, so okay. <laughs> the whole Burton thing is, is very, yeah. like... Two hmm. episodes ago, I talked about how... It feels like this is a book exploring a world with the witness and not necessarily exploring Diana Hunter. And then last yeah. episode, we get a Diana Hunter <laughs> chapter, which explores how everything we've been introduced to so far interacts with Diana Hunter. And then so now this episode, right. we have the anomaly within this world that is Diana Hunter <laughs> and yes. how yeah. Diana's existence itself is throwing so many things. Like we, she is the, the, the chink in every armor. She's like, like she's the yeah. exception to like every rule we've 
spent time establishing. Totally. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just, it's, it's great. It's great writing. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it, it like, yeah. Continually building on what's been established, but in almost every chapter, it re it reframes the entire narrative in a different way. It's totally very, it's very interesting it's yeah very fun yeah it's it's a it's a talent that hickman has as well whereas so like yeah so like hickman hickman takes the history that's been established and contextualizes it together that's true he, he does he doesn't have to do his own he reimagines yeah whereas right here we're introducing getting used like trying to ingest it yeah. and then mid ingestion it's like it actually goes this way and you're like oh let me just revisit this thing <laughs> let me yeah <laughs> <laughs> let me regurgitate all that and then change yeah. it and then swallow it back down yeah totally yeah it's, it's wild well the next chapter is the one that made me want to do this podcast uh, this book on the show in the first place <laughs> oh my goodness okay Oh wow! All right. Well, we are past your hard stop. Yeah, we. It's it's uh, time to wrap it up. So, thanks so, everybody for. I listening. will say okay. So next week we're doing the craze, the 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 big chapter, which may or may not make you happy. That the week after, I want to do X of Swords. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So this next week, um, um, uh, what is as normal proceed as what is the yeah. phrase anyway whatever uh we'll go as i'm doing regular comics you're doing you're doing yeah, yeah, next yeah. chapter Nomon, and then the week after that let's go back down into the x-verse krakoa i am stoked do you uh do you know what you're going to be reading for next week uh werewolf by night right I'm so excited <laughs> i have a juggernaut book Oh, cool. It's called, it's just called Unstoppable. Okay. And he's wearing like a black armor. So I'm kind of huh. interested in what's going okay. on there. Interesting. And then I have another book and I don't remember what it is. Cool. And it's in the other room. So it's fine. <laughs> cool. Just to tease it. The next chapter of Nomon is a sans serif chapter. Okay. And it's titled, I'll give you a counter narrative. <sighs> really? Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> All right, oh, man. Boy. Great, great talking wow. to you as always. All right. Yeah, man. So let's put the outro music <gasps> here. Right there. Everybody go watch Will on Twitch. Someday. Yeah, get on Twitch. Wednesday night. Take care, my dude. Bye. What the fuck is enough to journey? <laughs> What the f- is a gurney? How do you spell gurney? <laughs> <laughs>